Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline, from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Tuesday, November the 1st, 2011. November, folks, that means there's only two months left. Until 2012 is here. The year is almost over. I say this to you once again with a sense of urgency. What have you done to increase your independence and liberty at a personal level this year? Your time to make a difference in 2011 is wearing out. Just like it will every single year. But we're coming down to the end. If you had goals in 2011 and you're not going to meet them, it's time to reassess, well, is it reasonable? Am I going to meet these these goals in 2011? If not, well, when the heck are you going to get them done in 2012? What is your new timeline, your new deadline? What are the goals you've succeeded at? Look at them, feel good about getting those goals done. And out of the goals that are not accomplished, which ones can you accomplish by the end of the year? Put that all together and think about it today. That actually has very little, if anything, to do with uh, what we're going to talk about today, other than we kind of talk about that stuff all the time. Today will be a listener feedback show with emails and comments that you sent to me to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, my email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com or the survival podcast, depending on what part of the country you're from. Anyway, that is my personal email. If you want to get in touch with me, if you want to get something to me, email it to me. If you want me to read it, don't write me a book. I am more likely to read something with four or five sentences. Uh, that I am to read something with five or ten paragraphs. Just a time constraint issue. It's not that I don't care. I feel really bad when I don't read out all of those emails like that, but I just don't have the time every day to do it. It would be impossible. I would do nothing except podcast and read emails if I read every email incomplete that came in. So your brevity will get my attention much quicker than your long explanations. Uh, before we get into today's show, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Emergency Essentials at BePrepared.com. Really specializing in long-term storage food and everything else you need for your prepping needs. They also have a great, wonderful informational website. There are tremendous numbers of articles and getting started tools and calculators and stuff like that. Just go on over to BePrepared.com and check them out. They have also a great uh, mail mail cat, you know, catalog that comes in the mail other than just an online one. And uh, you can have that shipped to your door a couple times a year. Just fill out a simple form and make sure you get on their mailing list. Next up today, uh, Western Botanicals. When I need something herbal and I don't have it or it's not growing in my backyard and I don't know where to get it, I just go to westernbotanicals.com and then I you know, take a look for it and it's always there. And if I have trouble finding something on their site, I pick the phone up and call Dr. Christensen or one of his uh, staff and they say, yeah, we have that. Let's, uh, let's hook you up with that. And uh, that's just how it is with them, man. If there's anything you need or if you don't know what you need, Pick the phone up and call them. These guys will help you. Uh, they have a website where you can go order stuff, but I think what makes them really special is the care and attention that they put into serving their customers. And they will take the time to get you an answer for whatever your problems are. If you're in their area, get by their uh, by their clinic. I mean, that would just be awesome. But no matter where you are, these are caring people that will help you. When I met Kyle and his business partners uh, in Salt Lake City at the uh, Self-Reliance Expo, I was actually blown away. I was absolutely blown away 
at uh, how genuinely caring they are for people. And that that's really what makes me happy to have them as a sponsor. Next up today, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And you can also now hear the Survival Podcast Monday through Friday from uh, 4 to 5 p.m. on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network. That's at PrepperPodcast.com. And there's a lot of other great podcasters over there that uh, that you might want to hear from because they have some pretty cool stuff that they talk about, including Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, who are two of my favorite people in the world. i uh, got to get them back on the air for you guys soon. Uh, that was a really popular interview. Next up, uh, I want to remind you guys that you can support the show at 20 cents an episode uh, by joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you get some great discounts. I want to real quick announce some of the discounts that were added and some things that were added to the uh, Survival Podcast MSB just yesterday. Uh, number one, I just put in an ebook there. It's about 50 pages. Uh, it's $14.99 if you want to buy it from preparingyourfamily.com. And it teaches you the basics of wind power generation and tells you how to build your own wind-based power systems for items you can scrounge or acquire inexpensively. The manual, again, usually sells for $14.99 from preparingyourfamily.com. But guess what? If you're MSB, you just log into the MSB and get it for free now. It's, it's sitting there waiting for you. Next up, the glycation factor from Dr. Greg Ellis. I'm going to have Dr. Greg Ellis on the show. It should be the 16th of November is when that show should broadcast. And uh, one of his books, The Glycation Factor, which is over 500 pages, normally sells for $29.99, is available absolutely free for all members of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigades. In your MSB right now, all you have to do is log in and go get it. Uh, also, Greg Ellis, uh, his website is buybycarbs.com. And uh, there's a 15% discount on everything else he sells. Uh, I talked Neil into this finally, something we should have done for you a long time ago. You know I work with Valerie Asanoff. 15% off everything at ValerieAsanoff.com. So his, his DVDs, his download movies, his ebooks, all that's 15 off. So those are four new things that were added just yesterday to the Member Support Brigade. Uh, I also want to let you know that Safe Castle Royal, longtime sponsor, original sponsor, first one ever, uh, has been doing their membership for $29 for their lifetime discount club. They've raised it to $49. They still give it away to the MSB for free. Um, and I want to one more time reiterate this on the air. If you join the MSB... And then you want to go post on our forum, you need to join the forum. The forum is free. The MSB is a listener-supported program to help support the show where you get all this cool stuff I'm talking about. The forum is 100% completely separate. If you're trying to log into the forum with your MSB credentials and you can't get in, that's why. So I put all of that out yesterday on the blog, and I just wanted to you know, kind of rehash it here for you. Uh, one more thing before we get into your questions today. I'm getting a lot of feedback, some positive, some negative, on the stuff I've done recently about paleo nutrition. Uh, I think Dr. Ellis, when he comes on on the 16th, is going to help answer a lot of that. But personally, I'd like to do a show where I ask, answer your questions up to me directly about how paleo nutrition has affected my life and why I believe what I believe now. So if you'd like to participate in a show like that, send me an email. Do Jack at the Survival Podcast dot com and put Paleo in the subject. Uh, do not use the contact form. Do not put it on the blog. Come on, guys, send me an email. Jack at the Survival Podcast dot com. Paleo in the subject line. That'll make sure it gets sorted right, and I'll try to get that question onto it, uh, a show I'll do sometime later in November. With that, let's go ahead and get into the stuff you guys sent me today. Um, some of this stuff's old because I haven't done a lot of these shows lately. Some of it's brand new. One example of brand new is I've been asked to comment 
on the Greek issue. Okay, so the Greeks have had all of this problem going on, and the market goes up, and the market goes down, and then somebody in Greece sneezes, and the market goes down, and then somebody wipes their nose, and the market goes up. And that's uh, markets all over the world. The Hong Kong markets, our markets, the European stock markets, everybody, Hang Seng, all of this stuff has been going up and down every time somebody in Greece farts or wipes their butt because they owe a ton of money that they can't repay. So the European Union gets together, and says, here's the deal, we'll bail you out, we'll give you more debt, here's the interest rates we'll give you, we'll extend your existing payments, we're going to work with you, we're going to refinance your loan, basically. Just like going into a homeowner and they say, well, I, I can't pay $2,000 a month for my house anymore. And um, the bank comes in and says, can you do $1,200? And the homeowner goes, yeah, we can do $1,200. And they say, okay, well, we'll do all of this crap, even give you more debt, do all this stuff, You'll be paying on it for the rest of your life and the rest of your kid's life, but we'll get your payment down to $1,200. And that's what happened. And the stock market went up ballistically last week because of the bliss. We've solved the Greek crisis. <laughs> and then it's like this. Well, Dad says to the bank, yeah, we can, we can um, do the $1,200. But before we do this, since I'm going to be paying for it, my kids are going to be paying for it, and their kids are going to be paying for it, Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to sit down as a family and take a vote. And if the family votes no, we're going to basically tell you no to the deal. And unlike where the bank takes the house away, Greek says, we're just going to tell you guys you're screwed, you're not getting your money, and you can't repossess our country, so bye-bye. Now, this is not without consequences to Greece, if Greece does this. Basically, this is what would happen. The drachma would return, as far as I, I mean, that's the best thing I can come up with out of this. Greece bought into the European Union, they used the euro, and basically they would say, France, not getting your money. You know, Portugal, not getting your money. Everybody that has Greek debt, not getting your money. Or certain people that have Greek debt, you're not getting your money. And by the way, we're not going to use the euro anymore. We're going to go back to the drachma or the new Greek dollar or the Greek, Greek, you know, the, the Greek, whatever. They'll go back to their own currency. Now, the problem with that plan is that, number one, no one's going to loan you any money because you just you just walked away on all your debt. Uh, two, how much value will your currency have outside of the country? And three, what are you going to base your currency on if you can't base it on debt because no one will loan you money anymore? Or the fourth option is a strategic default. A strategic default would be, well, we're going to pay 80% of our debt. Instead of taking a deal where you reduce our cost to 80%, we're going to choose who gets their money and who doesn't. And we're going to maintain good relationships with some creditors and create a new currency based on that debt system because it's going to be a debt-backed currency because they can't go to gold because they have no money. Now, here's the, here's the big issue. So the question that came in with this with uh, this article that's out on the AP from Mark was, when does it make sense to default on your debt? When would that be better? Well, um, it, it depends on what your country is willing to do. I mean, understand... The, the Greek society that's been protesting and rioting and everything are angry because they're going to take away some of their retirement benefits and, and what have you. They're going to usher in austerity. So <laughs> if you think you're going to have to cut expenses and you're going to have to cut government programs with this deal, you're going to have to cut more if you default. Because now there's no more money flowing in from 20 or 30 or more percentage of the places it was. And even the people you pay to may not be real hip to give you more. So you already don't have enough money. This is not like the homeowner situation where maybe the guy's sitting on 100 grand. 
And he says, we'll just walk the house, take the money with us. Right? I mean, it doesn't work that way. They don't have a bunch of money sitting there to pay all their expenses with. To give everybody their equivalent of Social Security and retirement benefits, etc. So, when would it make sense to default on the debt to your foreign creditors, tell them to go screw, and reestablish your currency system? When you are, one, ready, willing, and able to deal with the consequences of those actions, two, have the complete buy-in of your citizenry to do so. So they know they're going to sacrifice. Three, already have a new plan for what the new currency will look like and maintain it in the public domain so it's a public-backed currency. And number four, have a plan for how long it's going to take you to get where you want to go and know where you're going. That's the only way you could use a strategic default as a nation. And it's probably what a lot of nations should do. It's probably exactly what Greece should do here. So part of it they're getting right. They're putting it to a vote. So the problem with that is 51% is a majority, but it's not a buy-in of your population. 49% of the people are still enough people to burn every building down in your country. So once you put it to a vote, and if it comes in at 52%, we've got 48% that are in danger of rioting on the other side when you take away all their goodies. You got 52% that may not have understood what they voted for, and when they start to lose all the stuff they thought they were going to keep, they might cross over and riot. Or if you say 52% is not enough, we're going to go ahead and do the deal anyway, then you're definitely going to cause a riot. And you're talking about big riots that would make, in every scenario here, make look like what already happened not be that big a deal. The consequences for us, being selfish for a minute, if Greece reneges on this, and their people say no, and they opt out of the European Union, it will create a six-month catastrophe for the world markets. And it'll probably recover because Greece just isn't that big. You know, it'll screw the French banks because they're holding a lot of Greek debt. But <laughs> if you can bail the Greeks out, you can bail out the people holding the debt from the Greeks. That's uh, another way to look at it. Another way would be for opposing banks to basically write off their debt to each other by both of them marking off the Greek bonds. There's a lot of voodoo that can go on here that can create a false recovery. Here's Here's where I'm going with this. I want you guys to prepare now, in your mind mentally, for the next 18 to 24 months to look financially, economically better in our country and globally than you possibly have imagined that it would. I actually believe that in spite of all this Greek stuff, and it might create a big hiccup in my timeline, you're about to see the false recovery truly begin. All of this stuff that was supposedly a recovery, that everybody's going, yeah, you're right, the double dip's coming, and I was going, no, no, no. That there would be a sustained economic growth in the in the global marketplace. There wouldn't just be higher stock prices. Unemployment would fall. People would get more confidence back. Things like that would happen. We are about, this is the, 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 the one thing that could be a grenade and go off and blow it up. As long as they lock this down, We have about 18 to 24 months of stupidity ahead of us. A big, giant, pop-the-cork party, everything is going to get better. That's what's, it, it, I've been saying it, and I've been saying I don't know when it would actually come, 2012, 2013, somewhere in there. But here it is. I can see the indicators of this all over the place. Let me read a little bit of this story to you, though. So just so, because, you know, the guy did send the link and all, and I, I've just gone on and on without even reading it. Worries that a planned Greek referendum could scuttle a plan to resolve Europe's debt crisis rattled markets Tuesday morning. The Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged nearly 200 points 
and the European stocks fell broadly. The dollar and U.S. government bond prices rose as traders moved into assets considered safe. Uh, understand what people are doing. They're dumping Greek bonds. Any marketable Greek security right now, they're just dumping it as fast as they can to any sucker that'll buy it. And they're going over and buying U.S. bonds. Think about that. Think about that. The Greek government shocked financial markets with news that it would put its unpopular cost-cutting plan to a public vote. If it's defeated, the country could drop the European currency and default on its debt, which would put the European banking system and regional economies at risk of another crisis. Quote, the Greek referendum puts connections between European countries at risk from free trade agreements to the common currency, end quote, said Guy Labas, chief fixed income strategist at Janet Montgomery Scott. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 194 points, or 1.6%, to 11,760 as of 11 a.m. The S&P fell 23, or 1.8%, to 1230. The Nasdaq Composite fell 49, or 1.8%, to 2635. Banks fell hard as investors worried about how exposed U.S. banks are to European debt. Citigroup lost 4.5%. Morgan Stanley dropped 6.5%. J.P. Morgan Chase and company fell 4.2%, the largest drop among 30 stocks in the Dow. European markets fell over. Germany, DAX, and X fell 4. Point, you get it, right? Everything went down. Everything went down. Um, the thing about this article is it doesn't actually say what what any of this stuff would actually mean. right? So I'll put a link to it if you want to read the rest of it. But here's what it means. What it means is a country like Greece um, with a GDP of like $300 billion. Uh, think about that. It's got a GDP, gross domestic product, about $300 billion. Uh, by comparison, California has a gross state product, which is the equivalent for a state of a GDP, of about $1.9 trillion. So California, $1.9 trillion. Greece, $300 billion. Greece, as a $300 billion GDP nation, can cause the markets all over the world to tremble with fear that they may not pay their bills. Because the public may say, screw it, we're not going to pay. Um. So what happens if California can't pay its bills? That's the real lesson here. No one wants to talk about that because, as I'm saying, I think California and the rest of this country will pay their bills on some level for the next year and a half, two years before this thing comes unglued. Um, I don't know is, is the biggest answer I can give you here. I really don't know uh, what's going to happen with Greece, and I don't know what's going to happen to the world if Greece defaults. I actually think if Greece defaults, it could be one of the best things for the world long term. It's definitely going to be a short term catastrophe, but uh, I don't like the idea of regional currencies. I don't like a global currency. The euro is one step closer. Take all these sovereign nations and put them into a common currency as though they're a single nation, as a union. Do you understand that the European Union is basically an attempt to turn Europe into a, a something similar to the United States? And that would, of course, begin eroding state sovereignty down the road, and that's, that's where they're already headed. So for, for Greece... To walk from the from the euro is to once again assert their sovereignty. Now, there's a certain sovereignty, you know, there's a certain thing that a sovereign nation should do, like pay its bills. So how Greece is going to work this out, I don't know. This is my belief, that if this thing is voted by the people, they say, no, we don't want, it, we don't want the deal. Greece will have to turn the deal down now because their, their country will literally burn into the sea if they put it to a vote. And I think they have to put it to a vote now. I don't think that, that their, 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 their government can now say, oh, we changed their mind. And if they do, oh, my God. So what would then happen is a strategic default, not a full default. So that strategic default might be, well, we're going to pay France. 
Because, you know, that's one of the big banking zones. It might, and it probably, the other thing is, they'll have a lot of leverage, so they'll probably go back to the EU and say, hey, we can't take your deal. Uh, some people aren't going to get paid. Why don't we all get together and figure out who can get paid? So, a lot more like a mediation in a bankruptcy scenario. So, I don't think it's a terrible thing. The thing is, how many other nations will go, yeah, why don't we do that too? Anyway, that's enough on one story. Let's move on to uh, something else today. Um, this one comes from Julie, and Julie says, Why am I suddenly seeing lots of new residential constructions here in the Northeast, specifically in New Hampshire? If there are foreclosures everywhere and banks aren't lending, why would there be new housing developments and condo construction going on? Am I missing some part of the boom-bust cycle, or is this just a mini-bubble? Thanks, Julie. Um, it, it's a couple different things. First of all, I want you to put yourself into the feet and the mind and the body of someone who has great credit, who has lots of money right now, and wants a new house. Okay, so that person says, I can get a, a loan for about 3.5%, so I can buy a lot more than my same amount of money would have bought me three years ago, when the interest, four years ago, when the interest rate was 5, 6, 7%, right? So I can buy a lot more. Uh, contractors are starving to death, and they're underbidding jobs like crazy, so I can get cheap money and cheap labor. The existing housing market is a catastrophe. Banks really don't feel comfortable about these older neighborhoods because some of the houses are vacant. If I look at these older neighborhoods, I've got one house on one side of me with rental tenants in it. The other one's been vacated for six months and no one lives there. Is this neighborhood in decline? Or I can take my good credit and my money and I can go into a new neighborhood that I know the only other people that live in that neighborhood are going to be people like me with money. People like me that rode through this thing, and I'm not going to have a foreclosed property sitting next to me because the, anybody that can afford to do this now has a pretty stable life. So I think that's more of why you're seeing a lot of new construction popping up in certain areas, desirable areas where people want to live. And the other thing is I don't have to deal with a lot of crap. Can I get a better deal going in and buying an existing house? Yeah, but if it's been foreclosed on or something like that, what kind of condition is it in? So I think for a lot of people, they just feel this is a better choice right now. I also think it's an indicator that, again, I believe we're, gonna, we're heading into some economic recovery. The reason I keep bringing it up is I don't want you to be confused by it. I don't want you to go, oh, look, everybody was wrong. It's going to be all be okay. What I've been saying for years, folks, is recovery equals crash. That when we get recovery, we get inflation. When we get inflation, the recovery looks better than it already looks like it is. Confidence ensues. But there's not enough money to fill the holes for all the debt. So eventually, the debt crisis happens here. And when a nation our size begins to have an internal debt crisis, then we've got a real problem. Uh, going on to another story, this one comes in from Cameron. Cameron sends me this, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard this one uh, recently. But uh, Sheriff uh, says it's time for citizens to arm themselves. Sheriff Chuck Wright doesn't hold back. This is on WYFF4.com, which is in a local affiliate uh, out of Greenville, South Carolina. Let me read a little bit of it to you. Spartanburg County, South Carolina. The Spartanburg County Sheriff is known for speaking his mind. And at a news conference on Monday, he didn't hold back his anger and frustration after a woman was attacked in a park over the weekend. Investigators said 46-year-old uh, Walter Lance grabbed a woman who was asking, walking her dog in Milken Park on Sunday afternoon. They said Lance choked the woman, made her take off her clothing, and tried to rape her. Lance is in custody and was denied bond on Monday. Sheriff Truck Wright opened his news conference by saying, Our form of justice is 
is not making it. He said, carry a concealed weapon. That'll fix it. Wright said Lance had been charged with numerous times with crimes against women and other crimes such as resisting arrest and escape. Wright said Lance had been on probation for a federal gun charge. He referred to Lance repeatedly as, quote, an animal, unquote, and expressed his disgust about Lance's long record in the attack. Wright said Lance had more than 20 charges dating back to 1983. Wright said Lance had been in jail more often than he has, and he runs the jail. He, he, and he said Lance gets out easier. Wright punctuated it by saying, and I am aggravated. He said he doesn't believe every person needs to be kept in jail, but he said, quote, I don't think this animal deserves to be out in our society walking alongside our women. Wright said, quote, liberals call me and tell me the chain gang form of justice isn't working. Well, let me inform you, your form of justice isn't working either, end quote. He said Lance should not have had the right or opportunity to, quote, violate a good upstanding woman, unquote. Quote, this is horrific crime, Wright said, quote, her life was threatened so many times. He said Lance, quote, doesn't fight police or menfolk. He just goes after women, end quote. He said Lance is not married because, quote, no woman can stay married to him because he beats them down too much, end quote. All right, if you want to read the rest. Actually, let me read one more quote because I like this one. Wright said, quote, it's too bad someone with a concealed weapon permit didn't walk by. That would fix it, end quote. He said people are tired of doing the right thing and criminals getting away with their actions. He said several times, quote, I want you to get a concealed weapons permit, end quote. Now, do you know my big issue with this? This is all over mainstream news and not in a good way. This is like, I can't believe this guy saying this. What the hell do you expect him to say? Some woman's walking her dog in the park. Some some pile of shit. All right? Some of you get mad at the four little words. There's not another word for a man like this. Attacks her, beats her down, rapes her, tries to rape her in a park. I guess she uh, was able to prevent herself from being raped at least. But this guy's 46 years old, been in and out of jail since 1983, has a record of violent assaults, and he's still walking around. Wait, what? Do you know what this guy needs? 38 caliber hole in his head. That's what he needs. You know, it, I, I'm telling you, there's people out there that the only solution to make them fit into society is to put them six feet under the ground. And then they'll fit into society as compost. And that's where this guy needs to be. And the fact that it's like shocking that a sheriff would tell his citizens, arm yourself. That's telling you how far our nation has fallen. I think if this would have been said a hundred years ago, right? First of all, this guy would have done it a hundred years ago because he would have already had his neck stretched in a town square. But if a sheriff would have said to his citizens a hundred years ago, hey, you know what? Make sure you're armed. Everybody would have said, duh. But now it's shocking. Now, what kind of message are we sending our children when we tell them guns are the answer? Here's an answer for you. A great one. That you're responsible for yourself and your family, and you're responsible for those weaker around you as part of your duty as an armed citizen. Because the sheriff's right. It's not just if this lady would have been armed, but if a passerby would have observed the attack and peeled this guy's cap, that man would deserve a medal. right? And I don't care if it's the woman feigning compliance and putting a 38 to the guy's temple, or a passerby breaking his neck or blowing his brains out. People like this should not be walking in our society. And this whole concept of, well, you just can't have frontier justice, sometimes there's a place for it. And in the actual commission of a crime, I don't need a trial to know that you're on top of that lady forcing her down in the park. Right? I don't, and she's screaming and yelling and you're beating on her. I don't need a, I don't need a jury of your peers to make a judgment in that case. 
And the law says I don't either. And people like this need to be buried in a hole in the ground. Um, next one comes to me from Eric, uh, who sends me all kinds of cool stuff. And this one's sort of cool, I guess. Uh, and you might think how it impacts my, my view that we're on our way toward this like blissful false recovery. Um, USDA predicts surging food prices in the coming year. This is on Glenn Beck's Blaze, and uh, let me read a little bit of it to you. The USDA has released their projections for food price inflation in 2011-2012, showing troubling forecasts that may send you to the grocery store today before paying higher prices tomorrow. The report shows the CPI, or Consumer Price Index, for all food increased 0.8% between 2009 and 2010, and is forecasted to increase 3.5% to 4.5% in 2011. Bruce Chrisling notes the USDA's projections are especially troubling considering Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke said he wants to contain inflation, although excluding food and energy, at less than 2%. Food inflation is running at double his target, writing in Business Insider. Chrisling says the problem is even more serious uh, than the USDA indicates and that global demand is set to push food prices even higher as time goes on. Quote, it's not surprising the U.S. pays less for food as a percentage of income than any other country, but the comparisons are still interesting. The U.S. spends 6.5% of disposable income for food. Poorer countries like Nigeria, Kenya, and Cameroon are forced to pay 45% of incomes to put food on the table. The high population countries are as follows. Vietnam spends 38%, Indonesia 32%, India 28%, China 22%. I find these numbers troubling. There's only one direction for them to go. The developing countries with big populations will see greater gains in income. That will lead to increased food consumption. Approximately 30% of income goes to food in these areas. It's not hard to see that it's going to push the prices on the globe for everything we eat. For example, the USDA put the per person cost of food in China at $129 in 2000. Today that number is $360, a 280% increase. Over the same period, the USA consumption uh, cons consumption increased only by 42%. Okay, let's not look at that as being mitigated. Let's look at the reality. Your cost to eat between 2000 and 2011 went up 42%, but you're still only spending about 6% of your income on food according to these yahoos anyway, and I'm not putting Beck down or anything. I'm just saying I think the average American spends more than 6% of their income on food. I really do. I think a lot of these numbers are misleading. But let's talk about going uh, into a place where food prices in 2011 uh, go up 35 4.5%. Well, first of all, 2011 is over. It already happened. right? Why do you think there's record-breaking profits? Do you guys understand that inflation equals profit? for major corporations that do business in the billions of dollars. 3% of a billion is a lot. But for the average American, the cost of your mac and cheese going up 3% doesn't really hit you that hard. It's something you kind of scale into. There's, if Let's say that we spend 10% of our money on food. That way it's 90% of the rest of our money to chisel away to cover the 1%. Or we can only have to increase our actual income. I mean, Let's do a little bit of math here real quick. So let's say a family is making $100,000 a year and they spend 10% of their money on food. Well, that's $10,000. Now let's say there is an increase uh, in food cost that year of 4%, right between the 3.5 and 4.5 number they give us. Well, that's $400 on $10,000. So they go from $10,000 to $10,400, right? So a $100,000 income family easily absorbs that. And this is a scalable number because it's based on percentages, okay? So... 
what is that $400 representative of their $100,000 income? And the, and the answer is it's 0.4%. So their actual cost relative to their high, entire income only went up 0.4%. Easily absorbed and in a situation where families are saving more money than before, cutting expenses, cutting debt, they don't even see it. And this is the hidden stuff. This is what nobody will tell you. Yes, I'm concerned that food prices are going to continue to go up. Yes, when I see a number like a 42% increase in the cost of our food from 2000 to 2011, it concerns me. But short term, I see it as actual fuel for a recovery. The biggest businesses in the world are restaurants uh, and restaurant chains and grocery stores. I mean, when it really comes down to it, they're as big as any oil company or energy company or anything else like that. And I don't mean the biggest. I meant to say some of the biggest. So if I said that wrong, I'm sorry. But some of the biggest corporations in the world sell food. And when these increases happen, they pass this price right on to the consumer. And they increase their total yield of profit. So you're going to see very large profit uh, stuff coming out from, from ma people that are involved in the food supply chain all around going into next year. And I think it's going to help fuel this idiocy. Does that mean I think you should just not worry about things and go back to living life like a grasshopper? Absolutely not. What I'm saying, and I think that maybe this is the old, the old cliche that fits here, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. This whole time that this country is supposed to be in recession, we're actually getting bigger and we're still expanding. We're still having growth. We're calling a recession 1% growth. It's not enough growth. We're calling a recession 2% inflation because it's not enough inflation. I mean, this is where we really are. The country's getting bigger. Our debt is growing. Uh, our, our economy is growing. And when that pops, and that's what you're talking about, the next time around, it's not a little pop. The whole thing's going to pop. And we may very well find ourselves in a situation like Greece three or four or five years from now with the rest of the world turning to us and saying, let's make a deal, and us having to make a decision, do we take the deal or do we have the guts to go through some real pain and tell them to go screw, and certain people don't get paid. Because here's the fundamental reality. We can't pay everybody. We can't pay everyone. We know that in the bond market alone, there's 20 times more debt than money. All the money, all the debt, 20 times discrepancy. Somebody's not going to get paid. We can either choose to pay people and restructure Or we could choose to try to pay everybody and eventually nobody gets anything. And then the whole thing falls in. I don't know, man. It's up to us what we're going to do in the future. But that's actually a conundrum we're in. Here's a completely different uh, question. It says, hi, Jack. What would the government look like if we could apply permaculture design principles to it? It would be really clear, curious, to hear, curious to hear you imagine a government based on permaculture. Thanks for all you do, Ben. I, I like the question, and here's the big reason I like the question. I don't have an immediate answer. I can't just say, oh, it would be great, or here's how you would do it. it it's very difficult. Uh, let's, let's try a little bit together, and I'd love to get comments on this one, especially from those of you who really understand that permaculture is about more than growing a potato, that it's a system of design. Um, we have four main tenets with permaculture. Prime directive. The only, um, the only responsible thing we can do is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. That's an interesting one when we apply it to the current debt mod module, isn't it? Right? Our children, grandchildren, and great grandchildren are going to be saddled with debt they cannot pay so we can have stuff today. So right off the bat, the debt-based economy is in violation of the prime directive of permaculture. 
So that's not even before we get environmental. That's not before we get into how we, we deal with people. That's just on the economics of the situation alone, a permaculture-based economy and a permaculture-based government would not be based on debt. Because it can't be based on debt because it harms a future generation for today's benefit. So we are taking responsibility neither for ourselves or for our children. The next one would be care of the earth. Right, So that's a permaculture principle. So now don't get all freaked out thinking I'm going eco-hippie here, but the reality is if you walk outside your door and you look down, you see Earth. It's the only one we got. We can't destroy everything. And you know I don't believe in global warming because of carbon footprints. But I do believe we're absolutely destroying the planet. So we would have to take major green initiatives, true green initiatives, forward. Not a tax on somebody that does things in a way we don't like. We would have to actually figure out how to incentivize and build an, a, a, an energy infrastructure that makes maximum use of the resources that are currently available. And that would be part of care of the earth. We would have to think about where we built things before we built them. And when we did build them, we would have to build them in a way that put them into the landscape instead of destroying landscape to put them there. No longer would we be able to build a... a um, Subdivision, we go into a forested area with a bulldozer and flatten every single tree and then build houses and people come in and plant Bradford pears. That, that, that would have to go. Care of people. So that would mean that we have to care about the people, including the ones we don't like, including the ones that we look at as the dregs of society, including the ones that we blame, right? And return of surplus. That would mean that we would have to build an economy that created a surplus. So we're back to a debt issue there. That's not that's not me giving you something because I worked and you didn't. That's not what return of surplus is. Those that think that that's a permaculture ethic, that return of surplus means if I work my ass off and I have a whole bunch of stuff, I should give you some. Robin Hood, grasshopper mentality. No. Whenever I listen to Lawton and Mollison, and Mollison, of course, being the founder of permaculture, Lawton being his, uh, I would say, his, his most... Uh, loyal and uh, uh, well-mentored student out there. When they talk about return of surplus, and they're going to go into Uganda or Jordan or some third world place, and they're going to go to a local people and say, look, this is how you set up this system for your home, how you live, how you produce energy, how you produce food. They always want that system to produce a yield, a yield beyond the needs of the individuals, so that yield can be sold into the economy so that the system itself is self-sustaining. Because without an economy, we don't have self-sustainment. So that would mean we would have to build industry in the nation around the concept of sustainability. A product would have to have value to others and have to be able to be sold first locally. And then further out. And, and we would have to be building industry that's designed first and foremost to support the neighborhood that it's in. And then let's, you know, to make things easy to understand. And secondly, the city. And thirdly, the county. And fourthly, the state. And fifthly, the nation. And sixth level for international exportation, which would not go away. If you want to eat bananas, we can't grow a lot of them in anywhere in the United States at all. So we, we've got to have international commerce Because we're going to have a surplus. But, I mean, that's the kind of the best I can do. Actually, what I think, you know, when I first saw this question, I thought I would just throw it out on the air and, and, and go through it like I did. Now that I've done that with you guys on the air, I think that I would like to take a crack at this. I'd like to sit down for a couple days and design the United States government running on a permaculture model, what it would look like. 
I think it would be very interesting. I think it would it would remain a democratically elected republic. I don't think there is another form of government that can be permaculture. Because for it to be permaculture, the individual must have rights. And the individual's rights have to override the majority's desires. So I have to rec- if I want a permaculture system and I want people out there building permaculture systems, and I want it to work beyond just a bunch of hippies on a compound, then I have to have private property rights. One of the cornerstones of a democratic elected republic. So that just because everybody thinks we should turn your house into a macadamia nut farm doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen. And that means some people are not going to get on board with the idea, especially early on. And those people need to have whatever they want. In some ways, in some ways, it would be a lot like what we already have. But we would have to eliminate debt. We would have to eliminate charity at the point of a gun. And we would have to eliminate a belief that we can just destroy things and everything else will be okay. And the big thing is we would always have to ask ourselves a series of questions before we took any action. It's really interesting. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to come back to that subject. Ben, thank you for asking it. Um, here's a different one. All together, this comes from Shannon in California. Uh, I recently switched emails. Had to write you about the events that befell me last night. I think you'll agree. The TSP audience needs to hear this one. I had a 13-hour road trip to drive yesterday. I've told you a bit before about my place, it, how it's an hour from the nearest, well, anything. So I'm quite remote. Anyway, on the trip, I got to catch up on TSP, and I got to listen to your recent show about prepping your car. Man, I should really do some of this stuff soon, I thought. The trip through California desert went fine. About 1 a.m., I'm headed up the mountain road back to my house. About 17 miles up the 30-mile road to my house, my transmission failed, and my car went into neutral on a blind corner in the middle of nowhere. No problem. I'll call my wife, and she can pull the truck off the road, and we'll drive home. Guess what? No cell signal. Gee, it would sure be nice to have some flares to put out for the corner so people would slow down and not crash into me. Nope, no flares. Well, I wish I had a winch or a come-along to attach to this tree so I could pull the truck out of the blind corner to safety, which was only four feet away. Nope, no come-along. It sure is cold, uh, and, and being 1 a.m. and exhausted from driving and working since 8 a.m., I can hardly keep my eyes open. If I had a good sleeping bag, I could sleep on the side of the road instead of in my truck, which is sticking out in the road on a blind corner. Nope. I guess I'll sleep in my truck and hope my wife wakes up and comes to find me before someone rear-ends my truck while I'm sleeping in it. Try sleeping while waiting to get rear-ended in a, in a car accident with a seatbelt on. Come to think of it, I've hardly eaten all day as I plan to eat when I get home. How about a snack? Guess what? Denied. Jack, here's your icing on the cake. Well, since my transmission is broken, it's theoretically possible that some gear works. Low gears, nothing. Four-wheel drive, nothing. Four-wheel drive, low. I'd never been able to figure out how to get my truck into four-wheel drive, low. And hadn't really needed to learn. And then the words of Jack Spirico ring into my ears from a show I had just listened to hours before. I'll paraphrase. You should know how to shift into four-wheel drive. Some trucks you have to put into neutral first. I put the truck into neutral and for the first time shifted into four-wheel drive low, and the truck moved. I was safe. I drove the next 15 miles at 25 miles per hour in four-wheel drive low. It took forever, but I got out of a dangerous situation and even better, got to sleep at home. Use four-wheel drive, Luke. (laughs) You might be my new Obi-Wan Kenobi. 
my brief message to the TSP community. Do it. Do it now. Imagine my situation with your kids involved. Do you want to choose between leaving your kids on the side of the road in the mountains in October or leaving them in a truck that could get hit by another truck at any time? My brief message to Jack Kenobi. Come to Northern California. I totally owe you a beer. Cheers, Shannon. Hey, I'd love to get out there. I'll do it if I can. I'm trying to get out more and more places this year. But how awesome is that? Um, it's one of those unintended consequences. I really actually never thought about that. In fact, um, I, I think I just learned something. Uh, and something that maybe if I ever get off my butt and write my book about being prepared in the car, I need to make sure I include. Like sometimes when your vehicle won't move, if you put it in four-wheel drive low, it just might. At least you can get it out of an area. Um, Shannon, glad you made it out okay, and hope the transmission problem didn't cost you a bundle, which it probably did. Um, next one, this is another listener feedback from someone that actually had to deal with some stuff. This is from David. Uh, David says, hi, Jack. I was the guy who called in while evacuating my family from the wildfires in Bastrop, Texas, last week, uh, Labor Day weekend. I apologize for the poor quality of my call. Dude, don't. Don't apologize for that. Uh, the service out there is bad even in the best of times, but I appreciate you putting my call on for the benefit of others. The part of my call that was wiped out mentioned two things that would have been implore everyone to do. Number one, buy pet carriers in advance for each of your pets. If you have five cats and dogs, you need five carriers. Once an evacuation starts, all the Walmarts in the area will be quickly sold out of this type of item. Number two, assess the top three most likely to happen catastrophes that could happen in your area and plan on e and, or even rehearse what you would do in those events. Having full knowledge of the risk of fires in a heavily forested area, we were meant we, we we were in meant we had planned out exactly what we would do when the event happened. Believe me, just having the thought about it in advance saved us from hasty panicky decisions during a critical time. Sure there were things we lost we could have saved, but we got out uh, with all the most important stuff because we simply planned ahead. In hindsight, if I had even bothered to speak to my neighbors before the disaster, we would have had an earlier warning and more time to evacuate. Sound familiar, huh? Uh, when I closed the gate and took one last look at my homestead, I thought for sure we'd be back later after the fire had been taken care of. Once we heard that the evacuation was going to be for a number of days, we headed eastward to stay with family instead of in a FEMA-funded hotel, which would have been too expensive with our pets in tow. Today we're still at our distant families, making do with a guest room, and the house is now known to be a total loss. We lost our lovely wooded bug-in homestead. It was three beautiful wooded acres with sweet potatoes and morangas growing strong. Everything was burned to ashes, and the metal roof melted down over it like a draped cloth. Hundreds of pines and oaks were burned, too. Fortunately, we were well insured, and we've been paying ahead on the house. So we have come through the other end with enough money to start out somewhere better, with little to no debt. It was just a lot less stuff to put in it. Uh, these times are kind of hard for us, but we are determined to move forward, making something good come of it. This year has been quite an awakening for me, and finding TSP and backyard food production have been a big part of it. I believe that your show played a big role in our preparedness for this disaster, and it will play a big role in our decision on what to do moving forward. Best regards, David, formally from Page, Texas. David, I'm, I'm deeply saddened to hear what happened to you, but I'm also encouraged to hear that you basically came out of it as best you could and that you're using your story now to help other people. And that's really important. There's also an interesting thing that comes up here. The reason he can rebuild and not have a lot of debt is because he had equity in the home. And I think it's something you people need to evaluate. How much coverage do you have on your home 
Because let me tell you something, and when we did the other show with the, with the thing about fire, one of the things we really didn't talk about is if you have a $150,000 home and you owe $150,000 on it and money comes in to cover a loss, guess who gets the first $150,000? That's right, your lender. And now you have to try to get a new loan. And your situation in life will change after a fire. So maybe the loan you got easily five years ago in a new climate you can't get now, even though you didn't default on your loan. So it's important to look at having cash reserves, equity in your home, low debt ratios, because even when you're insured, the first part of the insurance goes to the debtor, whoever you owe. All right? Just a thought on that. Um, or the creditor, I should say. You're the debtor. Uh, next one. Hey, Jack, a question regarding off-site storage. Would a simple, rigid, weld-sealed plastic container buried in the ground work well? After listening to your episode on fire preparedness, I got to thinking of what could be a simple way of burying important things on our property, but away from the house in case of fire or burglary. Five-gallon buckets with silicon seals or some method would probably work well buried and kept discreet. I imagine... It would have to be away from a house far enough that if something heavy, i.e. a fire truck, had to go on the lawn, it would be away and safe. I keep thinking of things like extra cash keys, combo to our safe, etc. Here as a backup, we keep these things in other places, but I thought more immediate area would be a good idea. What do you think? As I'm typing, I had another idea to use the same concept as a root cellar, although it would have to be below the frost line to be effective. So just bury 10 five-gallon buckets deep in the ground with a larger structure around it to protect against cave-ins. Uh, there you have a place to store apples, potatoes, etc. for the winter. Except, you know, so yeah, you could. I think that I would not just bury a bucket directly in the ground. I, I, I don't think that I would feel safe that the stuff inside it would be well protected. Probably the best thing you could use for underground storage is to use pieces of four inch PVC pipe and glued on end caps. Uh, that's about as, as durable and protected as anything can be. The idea, uh, you're giving me a different idea, though, of more of a mini root cellar. And for a lot of us in the south, we don't really have that whole frost line issue. Even when it freezes, the ground may, maybe freezes for an inch or two. But if you built something that was maybe three feet deep with a cinder block wall uh, with cover overhead uh, that you could get into relatively easily, I think you might have something that would be a good place to store some of your off-site storage along with using as a root cellar. But I would definitely say if you're going to do something uh, at all, do it right. And I think you need, even with your, your, your berry tubes, so to speak, your best bet is two layers of protection. So if you can create, uh, you know, like a contained area, like you're saying, in a secondary containment area, because uh, you realize that you're putting stuff down there that you might rely on uh, at an absolute time where you need it the most. It also reminds me, recently, I don't have the story, but somebody somewhere uh, found uh, a survivalist, of course is what they called it, stash. It was basically a gun and some ammo in one of those tubes somewhere. Uh, I don't remember where, but be careful where you, where you bury this stuff. Because it can end up in somebody else's hands, and it won't be there when you need it. So on your own property, I think, is a really good idea. Um, kind of ending on an up note, and this is a few weeks old, actually, uh, but it's something a lot of you guys sent me, and I wanted to, uh, to include for you guys uh, sooner or later in a show and make sure I talked about it. So, you know, I've been telling you guys that permaculture works and that we can actually feed the planet with permaculture. We don't need all these chemical fertilizers and we could use something like a tree to fertilize. And, uh, I think I've, I've heard from at least a few people in the audience that said you can either do permaculture and feel good or you can eat. 
And I, I just think those people are disconnected. And this is a great new study. I was on Science Daily about three weeks ago, October 14th, in fact. Um, so it's two weeks ago, I guess. Now, let me read it to you. New study finds 400,000 farmers in South southern Africa using fertilizer trees to improve food security. On a continent bathered by weather extremes, famine, and record food prices, new research released October 14th from the World Agroforestry Center documents an exciting new trend in which hundreds of thousands of poor farmers in southern Africa are now suddenly significantly boosting, boosting yields and incomes simply by using fast-growing trees and shrubs to naturally fertilize their fields. The analysis of two decades of work bring the soil-enriching benefits of the so-called fertilizer trees to nutrient-depleted farms of Africa was published in the most recent issue of the International Journal of Agricultural Sustainability. It it only shows five African countries. There are now, if only five, it, I'm sorry, in only five African countries, there are now some 400,000 smallholder farmers using fertilizer trees to provide critically needed soil nutrients, and many report major increases in maize yields, which shows that it is possible to rapidly introduce innovations in Africa that can have an immediate impact on food security, said some guy, and I can't say his name, senior specialist at the World Agroforestry Center and the paper's lead author. The study focuses on the rapid ad adoption of fertilizer trees by farmers targeted in research, training, and extension programs in Maori, Tanzania, or Tanzania, depending on how you want to say it. And yes, both ones are correct. I've been told by my British friends, uh, Tanzania and Tanzania. Uh, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and uh, Zambia. In eastern Zambia alone, the study reports the use of fertilizer trees grew from a pilot project in early 1990s. Why do I bet that Mollison and his people were involved with this? Huh? What makes me think that, you know, maybe, uh, that involved only 12 farmers, uh, to the adoption of 66,000 farmers in 2006 in Mallory. Uh, there are four, 145,000, uh, farmers using, um, uh, fertilizer trees in Mallory. In addition, across the region, researchers have documented a doubling of maize yields on farms employing fertilizer trees compared to those that did not, which has dramatically increased both incomes and food security. In Zambia, for example, incomes from farmers, this is a, listen about the income here, right? Incomes from farmers using the fertilizer trees average $233 to $327 per hectare compared with only $130 for unfertilized fields, and the increased yields provided between 57 to 114 extra days of food. Before I go on with the article, there's something I have to point out here that, that, that will get missed by the majority of people. The people using the trees got more yield with less land. Well, how can you say that, Jack? Because it was per hectare. Because the trees are taking space up on the land that's not being used for corn. There's a support species space allocation per hectare. So the reality is, if you actually figured this out the right way, how many hectares of corn planted rather than how many hectares of land managed, the number would go up further at an exponential rate. Because if we take 10% of our land for support species, and it's probably more, but that would mean that we're only using 9 tenths of a hectare versus the full hectare to actually plant into. Back to the article, quote, We found that when farmers plant these trees, water efficiency improves, Ajaya said. Oh, wait a minute. How is that possible? There's more things taking more water out of the land. It's more efficient? Apparently so. Farmers are getting higher yields from the same amount of rainwater. 
And the trees are helping reduce runoff and soil erosion. Trees reduce soil erosion? Really? Uh, that is a key factor behind food production shortfalls in Africa. Fertilizer trees enhance the soil health by drawing nitrogen from the air and transferring it to the soil through their roots and leaf litter, replenishing exhausting soils with rich sources of organic nutrients. Scientists at the World Agroforestry Center have been working since the 1980s to identify indigenous tree species such as fast-growing varieties of acacia that can be planted alongside crops to improve soil fertility. Among the many burden-facing African farmers are that soils are among the most depleted in the world, yet two-thirds of farmers on the continent mineral supplements Supplements are either too expensive or simply unavailable. In recent years, the center's work has focused on partnerships, particularly with the Natural Agricultural Extension Program, that can help more smallholder farmers integrate fertilizer trees into their crop production systems. Uh, Jay says the rapid up, uh, adoption of fertilizer tree approach is partially due to the fact the researchers have turned over much of the project design and testing to farmers. Gee, farmers know more about growing stuff than researchers. Interesting. Initially, these fertilizer tree projects were controlled mostly by researchers, Ajay has said, but in the final phases of development, all the testing in the field was completely designed and fully managed by the farmers themselves. What a great idea. Ajay says that credited initiatives that focused on integrating the fertilizer tree approach with natural national agriculture policies and priorities. Researchers believe wide use of fertilizer trees in Africa will require a two-track strategy that involves simultaneously engaging policymakers and farmers. Uh, you read the rest a little bit of the left of the article yourself, but I want to point some things out here. Number one, if they can do it in Africa, I'm just thinking we can pull this off here in the United States. How much better off would the Midwest be with more tree lines. That's all I'm saying. All right, the next thing I want to point out is that not only do they get a greater maize yield, they're getting a greater overall yield. If you're growing acacia or other similar leguminous trees, let me explain something to you that's kind of deep and scientific but very interesting. It's what's called the hierarchy of nitrogen. So the most nitrogen in an acacia or any other leguminous tree is in the seed Right, So that's number one. So the seed itself is high nitrogen. It could be ground and put back to the earth. It could be used to grow more trees, but it's holding the most amount of nitrogen. The seed pod, which is a litter product in the minds of most people, is the second highest portion of nitrogen. The leaf is the third highest portion of nitrogen. The twig and bark, the fourth. The least amount of nitrogen is in the heavy wooded structure. These trees coppice beautifully, or they pollard. Coppice is where I cut it low and it grows back. Pollard is where I cut it high, like head height or higher and it grows back. All right. So what that means is we can take this fast-growing coppicing tree and cut it in the beginning of the wet season or in the winter, and we can take the wood, the major trunk pieces of wood out, as fuel. So we have a fuel yield. And I can leave the, the bark, the twig, the leaf, the seed, and the pod behind to increase the soil fertility. So now not only do I get a higher yield of my corn crop, but I get a fuel yield in a place where wood is, is scarce, hard to come by, and the most used fuel out there. And I'm thinking, just thinking, if an impoverished nation like Tanzania or Zimbabwe can pull this off, Just maybe we can pull this off here. We have richer soils. We have more technology. The problem is, in our country, the technology and the cheap fertilizers become a crutch. 
And instead of innovating, which is what this is, this is ancient technology-based innovation. This is taking a system. Trees have been doing this for longer than people have been on planet Earth. When there were dinosaurs, there were leguminous trees, dropping leaf litter and improving soil fertility. And there were massive forests. So we're taking a system that's already there, and we're controlling, applying it, and directing it to a place that we want it to go. And I'm thinking if Zimbabwe can do it, we can do it. Just a thought. So take a look at that article today, and when you hear people say things like, you know, organic doesn't work, permaculture doesn't work, it doesn't create abundance, whatever, there's a perfect example of a concrete example of where not only it works, but it is working and the results can be measured. And we're in a biculture, right, a bicultural environment there. So what happens if we go to a true polyculture? And one last lesson for those that don't know these terms, and I've actually never used the one biculture before. There's the typical uh, way we farm in the United States today is monoculture, a single crop taking up a massive area. What we have here is a biculture. We have acacia and we have corn. And actually we do have a polyculture because I guarantee you in those tree lines there's weeds and things that normally would be torn down that are being allowed to grow because it's hard to get in there. And they're running their life cycle and they're doing their own thing. Because they're getting down there, when we coppice the tree, the weed is taking the nitrogen yield up into its greenery, and now it's going on the field. So there's a polyculture there, but there's only an intentional biculture there. What would happen if we introduced a third, or a fourth, or a fifth, or a sixth, or a tenth cultured species into this to the per hectare yields? Now, at some point, if we take enough of the land away from the corn, the corn yield has to level and then fall. Right, its, its yield per square foot may be higher than ever, but its total yield per hectare of land managed has to go down. But what happens to the total yield of the system? Because remember, just from this biculture, I have a firewood yield, right? I have probably have a feed yield because I can feed those seeds in pods, some portion of them to to to, uh, to livestock, and then I have a direct corn yield. And if I'm doing smart things, I'm probably drying up those corn stalks. I put them right back in the field instead of taking them away. Or, I'm used, or if they're being used for, for burning and cooking, or if they're being used for something else, I have another yield. So just from a, a bicultural system, I have multiple yields. Well, if I put in 10 components to that system, a 10, a 10 primary plant-based polyculture, how many yields do I have now? What if I have 20? What if I have 30? How does this relate to a permaculture style of government? or running a government with permaculture mentality. Maybe that's a better way to look at it. Those of you that have input for that show, please send it to me. Uh, if you have input for the permaculture show, you can do it on the blog, in the comments, or you send it directly to me. Put permaculture government. Remember, those with questions about paleo nutrition and paleo lifestyle for me for a show on it. Paleo in the subject line. Send that to jack at survivalpodcast.com. I'll do what I can to make that show creative and interesting for you. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. 
Nobody up there cares, they're living for 